of socio-political issues. One man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. 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 Welcome to episode 67 of You Don't Have to Yell, taking place in a magical week in American politics where the divisive tone has broken and people in both parties are in complete agreement that their candidate won. It's the bod boy of nonpartisan political podcasting here. And last week, we spoke with Pierre Dumaga, a Trump supporter, born and raised in France, about some of the differences between the European and American approach to work and government. Now, this week's episode follows up on that with Stephen Hill, one of the driving forces behind the implementation of ranked choice voting in Northern California, co-founder of Citizens for Proportional Representation, now known as Fair Vote, former director of the political reform program at the New America Foundation, this keeps going, and author of numerous books and articles on political reform. Now, I sat down with Stephen a few weeks ago to discuss his book, Europe's Promise, why the European way is the best hope in an insecure age. And in it, we discuss the differences between the European way of governing and structuring the economy, how the choice we seem to make between government regulation and growth is a false one, and the one political reform we can put in place here in the United States to make it all happen. And if you need any help guessing what that reform is, this is either your first time listening or I have not been articulating myself well enough. I'll be back at the end with some final thoughts. I've just been kind of consuming your material and there's there's just almost too much to dig into and uh and so i guess you know to start things off we'll start with a real simple topic could you just tell the audience your name and 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 what you do uh, my name's stephen hill um i come out of the policy institute uh s- sector and um, i'm now a, a journalist writing um independently uh about political reform and democracy, but also uh, political economy, um, economic democracy. Uh, you know, I, I write any, any, on a lot of things, anywhere from elections to healthcare to um, re- retirement pensions and geopolitics as well. So um, really run the range of, uh, you know, I, I look for a lot of comparative work, uh, comparing mm-hmm. the United States to Germany or to the EU and to China um, you know, the big three, uh, so to speak, um, and trying to um, just really get a sense on the the e- development models in each place and what are the advantages and disadvantages of each and who really is going to be leading the, the, this world in the 21st century. So my, my work is very future focused in that way. Yeah, yeah. And so if anyone listening is wondering how and why I got lost in Stephen's work, there you have it. Um, and I'll include links to uh, links to a number of your resources on the show notes as well, so folks can dig in. Um, now, before we get into, you know, sort of the, the, the subject of kind of the different economic models uh, in the world right now, and especially the way Europe has kind of tackled things, um, I want to start off with some of your earlier work because you were 
really, from what I can see, one of the pioneers in sort of the the implementation of single runoff voting in the U.S., first in San Francisco and then working with FairVote, right? Right. So um, I, I'm a co-founder of FairVote, uh, which is the, the leading organization working on ranked choice voting and proportional representation in the United States and um, was you know, basically there at the beginning, a pioneer of, of ranked choice voting. I mean, you know, when, we, when myself and Rob Ritchie first founded the organization, we didn't have a, a dime to our name, um, mm-hmm. and uh, but slowly built that organization up to the point where um, we had a number of employees and it's just continued to, to get even bigger under Rob's uh, very uh, able direction. And, um, and so we ran the first campaigns in the United States in decades on electoral systems. Most people, most Americans aren't even used to thinking about what is an electoral system. Well, mm-hmm. you know, in reality, you can take the same votes and have voters cast them through different electoral electoral systems. So for example, a district election system versus an at-large system versus a winner-take-all system versus ranked choice voting or a party list system that, uh, that they use in many other democracies around the world. And you'll find that um, the same votes results in different uh, candidates getting elected. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it has nothing to do with campaign finance reform. It has nothing to do necessarily with how the districts are drawn, though that is a factor. It's just a matter of how the votes are expressed through different electoral systems. Depends on who gets the majority, who's in the minority. Do you get just a two-party system, you know, Tweedledum versus Tweedledee? Or do you get multi-party uh, uh, environment where you can have a Green Party winning seats or a Libertarian Party or a re- Reform Party? And, and all these different points of view come to the table. That that is all determined by the electoral system. The electoral system is the engine of our democracy. And unfortunately, most Americans don't even know it's there. It's like the operating system of your computer. Um, you don't really notice it until it breaks down. And yeah. it broke down in the 2000 presidential election with the electoral college and the difference between the popular vote and the electoral college vote. And it's broken down in other congressional elections where you can see the Democrats win a majority of the popular votes across the country. And yet the Republicans win a majority of the seats in the House of Representatives. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's not supposed to happen in in a real democracy. Um, You know, votes to seats should be forever. You know, if you win 52 percent of the vote, you should win about 52 percent of the seats. And if you win 10 percent of the vote, you should win 10 percent of the seats. Instead, in our in our system, you can win 50 percent of the vote and get 48 percent of the seats and you can win 10 percent of the vote and get nothing. So these are real dramatic differences in that are caused by electoral systems. And then when you add on to that public financing of campaigns, universal voter registration, all the other components of a healthy democracy, you see that the U.S. is lacking in just about all of them. So it's not no surprise that we've reached the point where we have now heading into the next presidential presidential election on November 3rd, where the environment is just completely toxic and partisan. Yeah. Well, it's, it's funny too. You, you, you bring up all the common sort of boogeyman that people cite when they talk about political reform. And I actually found proportional representation, uh, when seeking a solution to campaign finance reform, oddly enough. Uh, because originally the, the goal of this whole podcast, the goal of the site was to really promote campaign finance reform, which I saw as the problem. And as I dug into it, and as I dug into especially European electoral systems, what I discovered is that their campaign finance laws, are they're different, but not 
fundamentally so that it would account for why things are so different here. And I finally hit it, hit on the fact that they have multipartisan uh, proportional democracies and, you know, to, to, to kind of flip the, the script a bit where I think a lot of people tend to look at PR in the U S as as sort of a, a left wing, uh, plot to get more votes. I mean, just to be real here in the 2018 midterms, 20% of Massachusetts residents where I live right now cast ballots for Republicans and we have zero Republican legislators. So it's not, you know, the door swings both ways. Uh, exactly. I, 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 I call those um, electoral orphans. They're basically <laughs> voters without a home because they, they're voting for their candidates and they never win representation. I mean, what happened to no taxation without representation? So I would think that anyone on, on either side of the political aisle, the fact of the matter is that most districts in the United States, say for the U.S. House of Representatives, are one party districts. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we can tell you right now, in fact, at FairVote, when I was there and FairVote still does this to some extent, um, we used to predict elections every two years and we (laughs) we could predict them with 95% accuracy. We could not only tell you who was going to win, but we could tell you the margin of victory in those districts. And it wasn't because of, of redistricting abuses. It wasn't because of who controlled the redistricting. It was just partisan demographics in san francisco where i live there are just way more democrats than there are republicans and Mm -hmm. in other parts of the country there are way more republicans than there are democrats who live there and and no matter how you draw the districts it's still going to end up the same way and so that's when you realize that really the problem is not i mean campaign finance reform is an issue and i have worked i've run campaigns for public financing of campaigns i believe that is also part of the mix of reforms we need okay but but in in terms of you know what we're seeing now um the you know, the simple fact of the matter is that when you're electing one seat at a time like this you're going to end up with a huge number of uncompetitive districts like we see now and you're going to have all these orphan voters who live in the wrong district or even some cases the wrong state you know, there are some in- entire states in California, every statewide seat is held by a Democrat, as if there isn't a single Republican in the state of California mm-hmm. that is deserving of having representation in the executive branch of government. Um, and so these are really the, the, as I said, the electoral system is the engine of the democracy. And these are the issues that Americans are not grappling with very well. And we need to really ramp up our understanding and knowledge base of, of how these things work. Yeah. And so I, I want to get into the, the different electoral systems, but I, I think that it's it's probably good to maybe set a foundation for the folks listening. Um, because in your book, Europe's Promise, you, you really, you sort of talk about the EU and correct me if I'm wrong, as one of three different like models in the world for, or three different poles in the post-Cold War world. Uh, and, and can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. So Europe has what I call social capitalism, mm-hmm. and the U.S. has what I call Wall Street Silicon Valley capitalism. China has what I call state capitalism. So they're all mm-hmm. capitalists. I, I mean, this is one of the fallacies of, of America, many Americans. They think that Europe is some you know, socialist uh, state or something. And this is very, uh, couldn't be further from the truth. There are more Fortune 500 companies in, um, in Europe 
than there are in, in the United States and India combined. There are more small businesses producing more jobs than there are in the United States. Um, there, uh, you, you know, U.S. companies invest more uh, money in European uh, businesses in Europe than they mm-hmm. do, you know, on many more orders of magnitude more than they do in China or India or any other place. So this is not ca- uh, socialism by any means. It's capitalism in Europe, it, but it's a different type of capitalism. It's what I call social capitalism. And what that means is that in Europe, they're more concerned about how to take the capitalist engine. Um, and how to harness that engine, because there's, there's no question that capitalism is the greatest wealth generator that humans have ever devised. But there's a, a question there. Who gets that wealth? Whose pockets does it go into? And that's where Europe has created a series of institutions to create a more broadly shared prosperity, harnessing that capitalist engine. And those institutions are both political institutions, so they have a more pluralistic democracy founded on the bedrock of proportional representation and multi-party democracy. They have public financing of campaigns and mm. um, free media time for for uh, parties uh, at election time, so that you know they're not having to raise huge amounts of money from private interests, which skews elections dramatically in the United States. Yeah. They have universal voter registration, so everyone is registered. This is none of this ridiculous. Um, partisan bickering over who is and who isn't even registered, you know, where the yeah. one side tries to keep the other side from getting their people registered. They start playing with things like mail, all you know, vote in mail and, and other types of uh, administrative procedures to try and keep the other side from voting. That really doesn't happen at all in Europe. They, they have the philosophy, look, it's universal. Everybody gets registered to vote. Um, when you're a turn 18 with, you know, the eligible eligibility, you reach the eligibility age, you're just sent something in the mail saying you're now registered to vote. Congratulations. And, and it, then it's just a matter of a free comp- competitive environment where you have multiple parties all competing for votes in an open and fair system. Um, that's really the type of democracy that we should be aspiring toward here in the United States. So, so first they have that bedrock of, of political pluralism. And then that feeds into their economic uh, system. So, for example, in, in, in Germany, um, you know, the largest of companies, Fortune 500 companies, um, their their corporations just like American corporations. But there's a significant difference in Germany. The workers get to elect 50 percent of the members of the board of directors of each of these big corporations. Hmm. Um, I, I mean, you know, think of that. It's called co-determination. It would be as if American workers got to elect uh, 50% of the members of the boards of directors of Ford Motor Company or or Facebook or, um, you know, or Google or any of these big companies. The mm-hmm. workers get to elect 50% of the members of the board of directors of these companies. Um, you know, and I, when I when I give talks about these sorts of things and i i raise this i mean most americans eyes get about the size of cue balls they can't believe it it's just unconceivable inconceivable from a u.s point of view that we would do something like this and yet uh, this is very common throughout the the european union yeah Um, such as one example there's many other examples of how they've structured their economy in a different way 
Um, they have, you know, more more of the labor forces are unionized. The, the labor laws are geared to encourage that. At every um, work site, they have what's called a works council, which is separate from the labor unions in which workers get to elect representatives. And those works councils have a great deal of influence with the supervisors and bosses in those businesses to negotiate over, you know, things on the shop floor or within your workplace about, you know, from anywhere from, how do you uh, you have ergonomic uh, correct ergonomics for workers? And if you have to do layoffs, uh, who gets laid off, and how do we do that? And, and one of the things that Germany has been done extremely su uh, successfully in recent years with all the economic crises and what have you since two thousand eight is instead of laying off huge amounts of workers like we've done in the United States, they do something called short work, Kurzarbeit in which everybody uh, who works in a, in a uh, workplace, instead of some of people getting laid off and others keeping their job, everybody cuts back, say like 15 or 20%. But mm -hmm. everyone stays employed and they've been saving money during the, the good times so that the uh, most of the of the twenty percent that you're not working, that you still get those wages. So you don't have the plummeting in consumer spending that you have in a downturn like you have in the United States. So you know these are just uh, in many ways just common sense things. I don't regard these as ideological or partisan. This is just about what works. And I think in many of the EU countries that do these sorts of things, we see that it has worked extremely well, and we could learn a lot from watching what they do. Yeah, I mean, one of the one of the arguments you made that I found really interesting is that in America, we like to laud the fact that we have small government, that we have low taxes, and that gives you the quote unquote freedom to spend on on what you'd like. But the the one thing you mentioned, which I which I again I found really interesting, was the idea that yeah, you know what, our taxes are are lower, how our government is smaller as a percent of GDP, but what we pay for healthcare, what we pay for childcare, things like that, that in and of itself is a tax. Right. So I mean, Americans have this very skewed thing about this kind of thing that, um, yeah, okay, our taxes might be lower in certain circumstances, but we're paying more out of pocket to get what Europeans are getting for their taxes. So for example, when it comes to healthcare, um, you know, okay, we pay more in taxes, but we're paying more out of pocket for our health expenses. Um, you know, many people have uh, uh, insurance plans where they have huge um, deductibles and huge uh, uh, co-payments and all these sorts of things. And so uh, when you look at also university, for example, um, Americans are paying way more. Americans, American students are going into enormous debt. In order mm -hmm. to go to college, and you know, most Europeans they they graduate, they have hardly any debt at all. Uh, you look at childcare. Uh, Americans are spending on average, if you have to have childcare, about twelve thousand dollars for two children um, for childcare. In in Europe, in many countries, it's you know nominal uh, cost. In some places, it's free. And when they bring your child to childcare for the day, and you go to work, they give them lunch. You know, so yeah. I mean. I, I could go through numerous examples like this where um, Americans are paying so much more out of pocket to get the things that we need in order to have a good life. And uh, I mean, I think if, if Americans realized how little they are getting for their taxes, they would probably <laughs> riot. Yeah, I was going to say there. So there's a Chris Rock joke or a Chris Rock story uh, about how he was flying first class. And he said, if Americans saw how first class passengers live there would be riots in the streets 
Right. And, and, and I think that that's the case with Europe. I, I actually, so uh, a little bit about you know, my background, you know, I spent some time working uh, for the European subsidiary of the company I, uh, I was working for at the time and, uh, and also have relatives in Ireland as well. So I got to see the way they live firsthand. Um, and I remember just hearing about the benefits they got to work, even if for, at, at work, even the food. I mean, the food was substantially better. And, and, you know, in America, we pay a premium to get food that's free of all the nasty stuff that's just common eats over in Europe. And it's, again, because of, I think, I, I think it's because they are, they, they, they put place more value in that sort of regulation. Um, yeah, they've passed quite a few regulations, um, really thinking through what kind of food supply, food mm-hmm. chain do we want to have? Um, you know, how do we ensure the safety of it as well as the quality of it? And uh, they've done that also with chemicals, the types of chemicals you keep under your kitchen yep. sink. They passed the law uh, a number of years ago uh, that really crack down on some of the terrible, terrible chemicals that Americans have uh, in, our, in their households. Um, you know, I mean, in, in general, Europe uses what is called a precautionary principle, mm-hmm. um, which says that, okay, uh, business, um, you know, Acme business, you have a new product or service that you want uh, to start selling to the public. You have to prove to us that there is no harm to it before we allow you to do that. And in the U.S., we have the exact opposite approach. Yeah. Okay, Acme Business, you want to start selling this? Go ahead and do it, um, and we will wait to see if there is harm. And then if there is, we'll crack down on it retroactively. I mean, think about you know what Facebook has created, for example. You know, the, Everyone thought it was such a cool thing in the, in the beginning, and now we discover that um, the way they are able to grab our data, they are mm-hmm. able to grab our attention, manipulate us. Um, you know, they're, it's become a portal for just really destructive forms of communication, uh, for, for manipulation of voters as well as teenagers and, and all sorts of things like this. And, and Facebook never had to show that its product was not destructive in all these ways. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's a... Uh, it's just a different philosophy, a different approach. And now some people say, well, this is too top down, too, uh, too much regulation. Well, yeah, I mean, that you can go too far in that direction for sure. But, there, I mean, you know, you can also just not have enough of it. Um, I mean, civilization in some ways has been created by the rules that we all agree to and, and making sure that we all abide by those rules and that, and that it's being done in a fair and uh, equal way. And I think that's what Europe has really excelled at that um, the U.S. could learn a lot from. Yeah, well, and, you know, you mentioned the precautionary principle that Europe takes. I mean, we, we kind of have the precautionary principle to government in a way where we're so scared of what government might do that we allow these things to happen. Yeah, you need to have a balance. Um, you know, the private sector and the public sector need to balance each other. And I think that Europe has found a better balance in that regard than we have. I mean, uh, no, the nonprofit sector is not utilized enough in the U.S. But people re- forget that nonprofits are private organizations. They are not government run, you know, socialist, uh, the, you know, all the stereotypes that are out there about government and, 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 and these sorts of things. So the nonprofit sector, for example, um, in Vienna, 
the way they do housing there is so, is, is really instructive um, for a place like California where I live, where the cost of housing is completely spun out of control. Yeah. So, th- so there in Vienna, fifty um, percent of the housing stock is either um, government run. But it's not, you know, in the U.S., government-run means poor people's housing and rundown housing. In government-run housing, you could have people of all incomes in Vienna in that housing. It just means that the government owns and manages that piece of the housing stock. So about 25% of the v- Viennese uh, housing stock is this government-run. Another 25% is run by private nonprofit organizations mm-hmm. and and whose goal is not to to make as much money as they can so basically 50 percent of the housing stock is non has, is is subject to non-profit incentives when you have that sizable um part of the market governed by a non-profit principle then it can act as a check on the for-profit market so you don't see the type of speculation in housing in Vienna and even London, which has a lot of nonprofit housing, and a lot of other places that have nonprofit housing. You don't see that kind of speculation and the and the inequality in housing that you see in city after city in the United States because you have this sizable nonprofit sector. The same with healthcare in mm-hmm. uh, in Europe. Uh, most people think of like oh. And, well, they all have government-run socialized medicine in, in Europe. That's actually not true at all. France, Germany, Belgium, uh, I, I would say probably most countries, especially by uh, population, have insurance with a backbone, like in Germany, the backbone of the German healthcare system is 200 uh, private nonprofit healthcare uh, companies. Yeah. They're private, but they're nonprofit. And because they're nonprofit, they have different incentives. They're not trying to, you know... Uh, milk you for everything they can. You, they they tell you. Uh, I mean, I've had experience recently in the U.S. healthcare system where I get a bill, and there's just a code there. They don't even tell me what it's for. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no transparency built in because they don't want you to know. They they're they're trying to to get as much money as they can out of you and your insurance company. And so, um, in in you know, in 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 Germany and France, these other places where they have these big nonprofit healthcare sectors, it acts in a way to keep the costs down. And that's yeah. why in the U.S. we're spending about 17, 18% of our GDP on healthcare. Places like France, Germany, um, UK, Sweden, and others, they're spending 8, 9, 10% of their GDP on healthcare. So we're paying twice as much money as a country for our healthcare, and we're getting less for it according to all the metrics, keeping track of people's health. We're, we're not as healthy as these other countries either. So we're getting less for our money. So, you know, you'd think if we were a country that was dominated by Trump and conservatives and all these sorts of things that they would be interested when you have a clearly inefficient, too expensive system that is not delivering for the American people. Yeah. Well, and two two stats I'll add to that, because this is something we talked about in an episode not too long ago. If you look at Switzerland, which is the second highest in terms of uh, healthcare spending as percentage of GDP, they have a model that is very similar to the Affordable Care Act in terms of an individual mandate. Uh there, there. The difference is that every insurance company in Switzerland is required to be not for profit. You cannot run a for profit insurance company. And if you kind of dig into the numbers in the United States, it is really for profit insurers that have driven up a lot of the costs. Not all of them. I mean, there's no one boogeyman. I think in American healthcare. But if we were just to bring our spending down to the level of Switzerland, if we were just to compete for second most expensive market, that'd be about $3,000 per American or yeah. $1 trillion back into the economy. 
yes, as a result. Exactly. You exactly. Know? So it's 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 um, and so it's unfortunate that the debate in the United States it breaks down either either to to the you know the Bernie Sanders Medicare for all yeah poll on the one side and the for profit uh, status quo, and yet there actually is a third way when it comes to healthcare, which is nonprofit medicine. Private nonprofit insurance companies that are the backbone of these co- of these countries' system, um, and they um, actually give better health care than either the Medicare for all or the, uh, certainly than the the, the for profit um, status quo. Uh, you know, I mean, it's just there, there's so many ways to measure this, and that they have measured this, and, and, it, and it's just not it's not even close. We are going to take a short break, and we'll be back in a moment with Stephen Hill. Hey there. I hope you're enjoying this episode. And is it becoming clear why we can't have nice things in the United States? Now, the level of polarity in our political system is such that right now, we can't even agree who our president is going to be next year much less talk about how to use government to improve the quality of life for all Americans. And the reason for this polarity is one you've heard me hammer on time and time again in every episode. Our winner-take-all system of elections only allows room for two parties. And as long as they only have one competitor, all they need to do is focus on dividing us in order to retain power. And without giving away any spoilers... Steven's going to give some advice at the end as to how we can all change things for the better, but it starts with us uniting around the goal of opening our political system up to real competition. Now, you all know the goal of You Don't Have to Yell is to serve as a gathering point for anyone tired of the status quo who's looking to promote electoral reform, and there are a few ways you can join in the conversation and help the movement grow. Number one, share this with any like-minded folks and write a review to let more people know about the podcast. You can also join me on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Just search for You Don't Have to Yell, and there I am. Lastly, come to YDHTY.com. That's our website. I'm not just sending you to some random place on the web where you can find additional resources and reach me directly. Now, 2020 is going to be the last decade the two major parties are going to choose their voters via the redistricting process, and it's going to take a lot of us to make this happen. So I really hope to hear from you. And now, back to the episode. You know, it's funny because you talk about that polarity in the healthcare debate in the U.S. And you mentioned a couple different factors, which is you know, something we talk about a lot on this uh, show, you know, the winner-take-all system of elections we have here. You, know, you, talk, you, you personally talked about things like campaign financing. Is, is the money in politics contributing more to that, to the heat behind that d- debate? Or do you feel our winner-take-all system creates an environment where that debate can occur? Is one more to blame than the other, I guess? Yeah, I mean, if I were to prioritize the blame, I would put the blame first on the winner-take-all electoral system, the lack of multi-party democracy where you can have different points of view, because that allows the lobbyists and the, and the, the, 
the companies and others to, you know, they only have two targets. Yeah. And as I said, it, it, in a system in which um, we can tell you right now who's going to win 90% of the seats this November, okay? Mm-hmm. Even in this polarized environment, we can tell you who's going to win. And so that means if I'm a lobbyist over in this district over here, I only have to lobby one party. Yeah. You know, I mean, most people think of us as having a two-party system, but we don't. The frame of reference for most people is of a one-party system. It's the party that dominates where they live. Mm-hmm. As, as I said earlier, it's not it's not possible for a Republican to win in San Francisco. It's not possible for a Democrat to win in many parts of Texas or or many parts of, of, of Kansas or, or, or where, ha- where have you. And so if I'm the lobbyist and I'm the money and I'm coming to try and influence this system, I've just made... The, the electoral system has just made their job so much easier. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so you really can't, I mean, they're both intertwined with each other. You have the type of lobbying system we have here because we have a winner take all one party uh, fiefdoms throughout the country. And, and so um, if we, if we really wanted to shake things up, um, sure, we could pass more lobby more laws, uh, uh, you know, conf- uh, putting rules around lobbyists. But if we really want to shake things up, we need to get rid of the one party fiefdoms that dominate American politics and replace them with a proportional representation system and multi party democracy. That is what's going to shake things up in a way that will then shake up these other parts of the system that are hooked into the winner take all system, including how lobbyists work and how the lobbyist laws work and, um, you know, including how, uh, who who they have to pay attention to at election time because they already know this district over here you know the the, the strategists look at the the electoral landscape and they say okay this district over here we know we've got that one one we don't have to worry about that one this district over here we know we're never going to win that we're not going to worry about that one either we're going to pay attention to the you know 30 to 35 districts that are what's called swing districts or battleground districts and those are the ones that are going to decide who has a majority in the house those are the ones that are going to decide you could extrapolate this now to states there are states that are one party states you know, you, you don't worry about those states that are won or lost by the other side or your side. You you focus it on the battleground states, and that's what all the presidential candidates are doing right now. They're mm-hmm. not campaigning all over the country. They're 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 just going to Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, uh, Michigan, and a few other states because those are the battleground states. And so that that part of that type of electoral landscape means a whole bunch of Americans are being ignored, and and the lobbyists are are free to also target in that way. And that makes them more powerful and more able to manipulate the system. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've always said it's, it's, it's much easier to buy off two parties than it is four or five. Exactly. And, and, and it's, and it's only, and really it's only one party in, in most places. You just yeah. Have to, well, you know, and if so. you, if you take a look, I mean, it's right there on uh, open secrets um, that uh, open secrets.com. I think it is. I'll clarify at the end of the episode. Um, but you know, they list all the donors. If you look by industry, generally, uh, especially when you're looking at like finance, health insurance, their money basically evenly splits between the two parties. Um, oddly enough, this is a weird stat that I haven't quite figured out yet. The healthcare industry is contributing a lot more to the Democrat side, which doesn't make a lot of sense to me. But you know. There's a lot I don't know. So, well, uh, you know, they, um, I mean, that's because they probably know 
that by and large they can count on Republican votes. Republicans want to get rid True. of the Affordable Care Act, so True. so they're they're focusing in now on trying to to pick off, you know, moderate Democrats Democrats who are shaky in their mm-hmm. uh, support of of the Obamacare or any type of universal system. Um, as a way to undermine and, and to try and uh, get rid of it, you know. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, you know, I don't know if most Americans even realize that we are, you know, really the only developed democracy in the world in which everybody does not get health care. Mm-hmm. Uh, we still have about, you know, probably 10 million Americans that don't have health care. Uh, Obamacare, uh, when it came in, we had about 15 to 16 million Americans that didn't have health care, and Obamacare added to five or six million. But we still have huge numbers of Americans that don't have health care. And Trump is trying to, you know, to unra- unravel Obamacare to the point where even more Americans won't have it. So, I mean, this is a national disgrace. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, other pun- countries around the world, places where I've worked and lived, you know, in Germany and and in France and other places, they just look at this and say, my goodness, your country is so wealthy. How could you possibly have a system in which all Americans do not have health care? And especially the poorest people of all, the ones who need it the most, do yeah. not have health care. I mean, it's yeah. just simply, uh, it's, it's just um, a disgrace that members of Congress give themselves Cadillac uh, plans when it comes to health care, when it comes to retirement pensions and all these other perks of office, they give themselves the best of the best. They, they give themselves European level benefits. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and when it comes to, uh, to Americans, to their fellow Americans and their, even their constituents, they give them nothing. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting too, because when you wrote Europe's Promise, uh, we were all just maybe climbing out of the financial crisis or that hangover was there. And we're right in the middle of another one right now. And it happens to be a public health crisis. So when you look at the European model versus the American model, what are you seeing there in terms of how they're standing up to this? Well, I mean, the, the, the first thing that, that comes immediately to mind is that I'm not aware of any EU member state in which whether or not to wear a mask became a political or partisan issue. <laughs> you know, I mean, they were some of the European member states were a little bit slow yeah. to realize what was happening, uh, Italy and Spain in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, but once they did, everybody was united in, my goodness, of course, we've got to wear masks. We've got to have social separation. I mean, they, they basically listened to their health uh, officials and they listened to the science and, and it did not become a political football. The U.S. political system, again, this comes back to the winner-take-all electoral system, which creates this polarized two-party, if my party is right, if, if I'm right, then you're wrong. And if, and if, you're, uh, you, know, if, you, if, if you win an election, then that means I lose an election. That's mm-hmm. what the two-party partisan uh, system produces. And so it, it immediately became an issue of, you know, the mask is uh, let's not listen to the to the health experts let's not listen to science but let's make it a political issue so that's the first thing that comes to mind but then the other thing is once the europeans realized what they were up against they mobilized pretty quickly mm-hmm. um, they were not in denial at all about it they didn't have they've had some disagreements over how fast how quickly to reopen the economies um, and they had uh, whether or not to restrict travel between member states. 
um, which if, if for various historical reasons, that's a big deal in Europe, uh, yeah. you know, to start bunkering down into their own little uh, countries again. Um, they There was some disagreement, but in the end, they figured out a way uh, to deal with that. And, you know, they've had, uh, they, 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 they got the, the, the situation under control much more quickly than we did. Much fewer people died. Uh, and they've had uh, a few cases now, a few countries where they've had flare-ups again. And quickly, again, they've been able to close down parts of the economy in order to get a handle on that. They do it on kind of a regional basis at this point, whichever region is flaring up. And then they're able to slowly reopen again. So it, you just see it proceeding in a much more um, rational and just health-driven process than what we're seeing here in the United States. And yeah. I think that is partly because, you know, they have, it's not this, this, you know, winner take all. If, if my party's right, yours must be wrong type of environment. It's, it's, it's much more healthy and robust in terms of debate, discussion, pluralism, um, hearing from the experts in the science and not having it be a wedge issue in a, a you know, a battleground state or a battleground district in the next election. Yeah, I mean that's something I've uh I've said before on this podcast is you know you look at all the money we spent on or we spent on the military over the years and it turns out the best line of defense against our most competent enemy was giving the guy who makes your salad a sick day. You know, I mean that right. would have done more to thwart this than anything else. Quick well, oh, go I on, mean, sorry. You know, I mean it, it's sort of it's also true that I mean, another example is the United States is one of the few, it's like one of five, maybe seven countries in the world that doesn't have paid sick leave for mm-hmm. its employees. Um, you know, and, and, and I like to use this example when I'm doing talk radio on, on, on conservative stations and with conservative hosts, because, I mean, think of it just from the business point of view. Why would you want a worker showing up to work who's sick? Yeah. And, and infecting all of the rest of your, your co- your, their coworkers. Yeah. Makes absolutely no sense. And so that means as an American, and this is even before COVID, when you go into a restaurant to work, because many of the people who can't afford to stay home, if they're sick, are waiters and people work in, in restaurants and people work in the service sector. So when you go into many businesses where you're buying things, you don't know if that worker actually should be home because she or he is, that, is quite sick, but they couldn't afford to stay home. And so you, sh- you, they show up to work and they infect the customers, they infect their coworkers. It makes absolutely no sense. So this is the American mentality, um, you know, and somehow the businesses will say, oh, well, I, we can't afford this. Well, yeah. how can Ireland afford this? How can Portugal afford this? How can Poland, how can Romania afford this? But the United States cannot. I, that's something that, uh, you know, all... Every every American should be asking both Democrats and Republican candidates to understand to explain that one to us. I want to I want to pivot a little bit here because you know we've talked a lot about the the main differences. The the big thing is again this this built in polarity, the way our elections effectively require us to jump on one side of the fence or the other. And you actually have some experience getting this done. Um, and, and I'd really love to just dig into your experience promoting what was, you know, called single runoff voting and more or less to the best of my understanding is ranked choice voting in San Francisco, but also some of your work at the federal level. I'd love to learn a little bit about that and, and give folks listening an idea as to what's really needed to get this change in place in the, in the U S. Well, you know, the, um, 
Yeah, there's so many different areas in which the U.S. needs to, you know, reform our from our politics to our economics to our banks to all sorts of things. And so it can feel for many people just overwhelming because they sense that. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, if you're going to engage in reform work, you have to at some point narrow in on something that you focus on. And, um, you know, I think doing political reform is in the United States is a is a good uh, place to start because in so many ways, what's broken about the United States won't be fixed without real political reform in the United States. Mm-hmm. And real political reform means, you know, converting our legislatures to proportional representation, converting our, our single winner races like mayor or governor or president to rank choice voting, instant runoff voting, where you get to rank a first, second and third choice, public financing of campaigns, universal voter registration. Um, you know, in, in Europe, they have things called children's parliaments where children in school get to elect representatives in their school. And, and those representatives get to propose legislation to the local city councils. And I interviewed the deputy mayor of Cologne, Germany. And I asked, well, what do they propose? Like chewing gum in school or silly things? Yeah. She said, oh, no, it's completely serious. They think of things that the adults don't think of. So, you know, like we put stones down at all the school grounds. They said, you know what? Those stones hurt. We put something softer down uh, all the way to they propose becoming uh, their cities, becoming sister cities with cities in, in, in South America and other places with the rainforest. And so you're basically creating a new generation of leaders by having things like children's parliaments. And so, yeah. you know, you really can start um, in very bite-sized ways, you know, converting your local um, food co-op, if they have any kind of elections at all to elect a board, turn that into an election using instant runoff voting. Um, turn that, uh, you know, you can elect um, your local school boards, your local city councils using these methods. And so start at a place that feels reachable for you. And keep in mind that reform is... Um, is, opportun- is opportunity driven. You have to look for a place where it's clear that there is a problem that needs to be solved and you have the unique solution to that problem. So for example, when I passed uh, ranked choice voting um, in San Francisco, which at the time was known as instant runoff voting, these names get thrown ar- around interchangeably a lot. Yeah. Um, so we, you know, we used to have two elections uh, to elect our city council, which is called the Board of Supervisors here. And the first election would be in November. And if nobody got a majority, then we would have a second election in December among the top two finishes. It was a terrible time of the year for an election. You know, it's close to the holidays. Mm -hmm. Um, People are students are getting ready to finish up exams. I mean, nobody liked it. The voter turnout would plummet from November to December, but oftentimes by 50 percent. So we proposed look, we don't need to have that December election anymore. We can elect majority winners in a single election using instant runoff voting by allowing voters to rank their first, second, and third choice. And, you know, in a sense, your second and third choice are like your runoff choices in case your first choice can't win. You've already indicated them ahead of time and the the ballot counting just says, okay, this voter's first choice didn't, didn't win. Now we're going to go to this voter's second choice and add that to the pile of remaining candidates. And so... This kind of system, um, when I first passed it in, in San Francisco in uh, 2002, it had been the first time any change in the electoral system like this through a, a voter initiative um, in uh, like 50 years in the United States. And now it's breaking out all over the place. The state of Maine is now about to use 
uh, instant runoff voting for in the in this year's presidential election, yeah. as well as for the senator uh, the Senate election, in which Susan Collins may very well lose her seat to the Democrat. Um, and uh, so there's one example where you know we started out with one place, one type of election. And we worked hard. We passed it. And actually, I should say it took us two times to pass it. We also had it on the ballot in 1996. Didn't pass. There was some uh, flirting with it in 1999. Almost got on the ballot. Didn't make it. Finally got on the ballot in 2002. And we used it for the first time in San Francisco in 2004. Mm-hmm. So, um, and this was all through my work at Fair Vote. Uh, we had an organization at that point that could, you know, help us to do this in a, in a professional way. But, it, you know, uh, there are a number of places where uh, it's on the ballot this November and it's all being done by volunteers in smaller towns and cities. So, you know, uh, same with public financing of campaigns. We passed that through a voter initiative in San Francisco. I led that campaign as well. There's a number of places where we've passed it, Oakland, Berkeley, San Leandro in the Bay Area. Um, and now these places have been using it for you know, uh, 15 years or more. Mm-hmm. And we can see the results and we can see that it's working well and that uh, different types of candidates who before did not get elected in San Francisco and, and, and these other cities are now getting elected, including women and people of color. Um, and so it's really hope, helped to broaden the representation in these cities where it's being used. Yeah. So that's one example. And, there, and it, you know, there's many other places where this can be done. Yeah. And when you say opportunity driven, is that, does that mean a crisis or does that mean a high level of electoral dissatisfaction? Like what kinds of things should people look for? Yeah, it's, it's all of the, all of those. Um, you know, as I said, in the example, um, in our case, it was, we were having two elections. We said we can do it in one and, you know, and we said yeah. we could save a lot of money by doing this. Candidates can save money. So it's a form of campaign finance reform. You know, that was the opportunity. We saw that there were two elections and now we can get it down to one and um, and save all this money and save taxpayer money. Um, You know, and oftentimes, especially in local elections, that that is the type of thing you can look to see. And are there two elections being used to finish uh, uh, electing office holders when one election could do it? New York City just uh, voted last year to go to ranked choice voting because they were actually using four elections they they have uh at the local level they have partisan primaries and if no one had a majority in the first election you'd have to have a second election and then after you finish the partisan primaries all of those winners would go into the general election and if nobody got a majority there you'd have a, a, a runoff there and sometimes it takes four elections to elect the mayor of new york city or or other <laughs> office it's just yeah. ridiculous i mean it's a waste of taxpayers it's a waste of voters time it's a waste of candidates' time. And so doing ranked choice voting with public financing like we did in San Francisco are, are two powerful reforms that work extremely well together. I think that's, that's very actionable, too, because um, I think the one thing that the one mistake a lot of folks make is we all think big. We all think federal. We all think the presidency. The reality is, is and if I'm, if I'm picking up what you're saying right, you know, in a lot of cases – acting at the local level can very often serve not just as a way to reform elections, but also almost as an educational device. And the fact is, is, you know, the rank, the, the rank choice voting uh, ballot initiative going on in my state of Massachusetts right now uh, is the result of Maine and the result of us learning from Maine. 
Exactly. It's a result of Maine, and Maine is a result of San Francisco and the other places we passed. So you have to build. Uh, I mean, you know, you know, the United States is a very big country. And if you look at the history of, of the advances that have been made from women's rights to uh, voting rights for, for uh, people of color, they often start at the local level. They very rarely start at the federal level. And you, and you build up and you slowly over time... Um, I mean, I think of it as a kind of like the states and the cities are the laboratories for new ideas. Mm-hmm. And you, you get those those new ideas in place somewhere because when you when you start going down the reform path, the first question that the establishment will ask you is, where is this being used? Where is it? How does this work? How do we know this is going to work, as you say? And so now that we have a lot of places to point to and there are academics doing studies on this stuff, we have so much more data now to point to that we than we had back in the 1990s and the early 2000s when I was you know passing this in various cities and states, so um, we really uh, it, it's a good time to, to embark on something like this if this is if people feel like they want to roll up their sleeves and, and get to work on it. That's great. Well, uh, Stephen, if you're tired of doing it all yourself, consider the torch passed. <laughs> you know, my conversation with Stephen echoed a number of themes in the episode I did with Liam O'Mara a few weeks back. The main one being that government and the economy can and should be structured in a way that elevates the living standards of all, rather than what we have now, which really focuses solely on maximizing GDP growth and profits. And what's more noteworthy is that the European Union has seen similar GDP growth over the last 30 years as the United States, has a lower debt to GDP ratio than the United States, and has still managed to provide its citizens with protections that seem like a pipe dream here, like low-cost childcare, low-cost education, low-cost healthcare. And our system in the U.S. is tilted towards the powerful because the two-party system is way too easy to corrupt. And introducing reforms that would break the duopoly once and for all is the first step towards more effective government. Now, you can learn more about how you can help implement reform right in your neighborhood at fairvote.com. There are a ton of resources you can use there. And I've also included some additional resources in the show notes on ydhty.com. Just go to the homepage, click episodes, you'll find it there. On a final self-serving note, if you like this episode, be sure to share and leave me a review and let other folks know what you think. As always, YDHTY's editorial advisor is the Rear Admiral Adam Yaffe. YDHTY is produced in the still undecided state of North Carolina. Sweet mother of God. The Big Gino, Jason Putney. Until the next, this is Dan Sally saying goodbye. Goodbye.